KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. How are the reduced polling places spread around San Diego? Is it possible that some voters are going to have a really easy time because they've kept more of their locations than others? I'm Allison St. John with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The issue of climate change has been pushed to the margins in this election. During the primary season, there was a huge amount of attention to climate because this is one of the areas where the Democratic candidates differentiated themselves. Once you go into the general, this election is largely a referendum on the incumbent. And in our final voter cram session, we'll bring you thumbnails of several key propositions. Plus, Dia de los Muertos takes on a particularly poignant significance in this year of COVID. That's ahead on Midday. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Today is our final midday edition voter cram session, and we'll bring you thumbnails on several ballot measures and propositions. But first, a look at polling places. Many San Diego County voters have already cast their ballots, but for those who waited to vote in person at their local polling places, this year has seen big changes. The number of polling places in San Diego has shrunk dramatically. This is part of the response to COVID-19 to cut down on the risk of exposure. Voters have been encouraged to vote by mail or at drop-off locations. But tens of thousands of ballots do remain to be cast. KPBS partner iNewsource has done an analysis of which communities have seen the biggest drop in polling venues. And here to tell us what they found is iNewsource reporter Jill Castellano. Jill, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Allison. There are 235 polling places around the county this year, which may seem like a lot, but in the past there have been 1,600. Why did you decide to analyze the location of the remaining polling places? We just wanted to make sure that the locations were placed equitably. So what we're looking for is, is it possible that some voters are going to have a really easy time because they've kept more of their locations than others? So tell us about what you found. Which zip codes lost the most voting locations and which gained or retained the most? Some zip codes were definitely more affected than others. We found that there is one zip code, the 92105 zip code, which includes City Heights and Oak Park. In 2018, they had 23 polling locations. Now they just have one, and there are more than 30,000 registered voters there. So that's a really big loss. We also noticed that the 92110 zip code, which includes Old Town and Bay Park, used to have 17 locations is now down to just one for their 16,000 registered voters. So that's a big loss as well. And which areas retained the most? There are some zip codes like the ones covering Rancho Bernardo, 92127. They have about half as many registered voters as City Heights, yet they're keeping six polling locations. So that's a big difference. We also noticed in Point Loma, their zip code, 92106. They don't have, relatively speaking, that many registered voters, about half as many as City Heights, but they're still keeping two polling locations. So there's a little bit of a difference there. Um, What about rural areas, Jill, places like La Hacumba? How have they done on polling places? Yeah, Hacumba is an interesting 
example, in East County, they had their own polling site in the March primary. But for this election, for the fall, voters are going to have to drive 25 miles all the way to Pine Valley to vote in person. So because there are so few sites in East County, because it's less populated, you can get really lucky and have a location nearby, or you're going to have to drive a long way. Now, the county registrar of voters decides where the polling locations will be. How did Michael Vu make those decisions? What did he take into consideration? There are a lot of factors they had to consider. For one, they were looking for well-known sites that would stand out as markers to people, so like community centers and public schools. They also had to account for factors like having enough electrical power, having sufficient parking, and making sure the size of the space was big enough. Since there are fewer locations this year, they were looking for locations that were larger, like at least 2,000 square feet, which is new. He also added that the number of polling locations is well above the state required minimum this year, about 28% greater. So they really put in a lot of effort, he said, to make sure they had enough locations to make sure everybody was able to vote in person. You spoke with Evan Crawford, a researcher at the University of San Diego, about the results of your survey. What was his response? Yeah, I can tell you he definitely um, felt that this was a difficult situation for the registrar's office and knows that this is this is not easy. You don't normally reduce the number of polling locations so drastically and quickly. But he said, this is the reality of COVID. This is making voting a lot different this year. He said, there's no good responses to this. There's only, what's the least bad way to do this? And what about the information on where to go? Have voters in the most impacted zip codes been getting the information they needed? It depends on who you talk to. Civic advocates have expressed some concern. They're worried that voters, especially in communities of color, aren't aware of these changes and that there hasn't been enough education. If you talk to Michael Vu at the registrar's office, he says, actually, they've been putting in a lot of effort to education. They've been sending mailers out to every voter. They offer translations in different languages. He said they hired a contractor to help place ads around the county in prominent public places. He also said, if you go to your old polling location, by accident, you'll see a sign there with a map of where your new location is. And of course, the polling place address is printed on the back of the sample ballot, assuming you still have that, right? Well, finally, since there are so many people who voted already uh, by mail or dropping off their ballots, is in-person voting going to play a big part in this election? Absolutely. We know that every voter was mailed a ballot and a lot of those ballots have already been returned. And we do know that Michael Vu's office, the registrar's office, prefers people to vote by mail. But some people still feel really drawn to voting in person. iNewsource reporters have been on the scene at polling locations since they've opened on Saturday. And we've seen a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of people who really feel really attached to voting in person, maybe because it's their first time casting a ballot. Maybe they're a little bit concerned about their ballot being um, counted if they cast it by mail. So we're seeing that enthusiasm, seeing people showing up to the polls already, and we know they'll continue to do so through Tuesday. So this is a big part of the election this year. Great. We've been speaking with Jill Castellano, iNewsource reporter. Thanks, Jill. Thanks so much.
Californians are voting on a dozen state ballot propositions this election. As part of an effort to make them clear to voters, CAP Radio's reporters focused on five of those ballot measures. So let's start off with Proposition 14. Prop 14 would increase state funding for stem cell research on treatments for HIV, Alzheimer's, and dozens of other diseases. Supporters say it's a needed boost, but opponents call it unnecessary debt. CAP Radio's Sammy Kayola reports. Curing diseases is hard. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money. Advocates of stem cell research say there isn't enough in California's coffers to fund this important work. Larry Goldstein is a neuroscience researcher who supports Proposition 14. It would allow the state to purchase $5.5 billion in bonds for stem cell research. Government financing historically has made a big difference, and it will fund the steps in the clinical trial development process that we just can't get private industry or the the federal government to fund. The money would go to the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. It was established by a 2004 proposition that put $3 billion into stem cell research. Opponents say the field is thriving and doesn't need more state funding. Jeff Sheehy is a board member of the very institute that would receive the money. He's opposed, but the rest of the board endorsed the measure. He says the institute can thrive using federal and private money. So why does stem cell research suddenly deserve to have the state go into debt to fund it when it's amply funded at a federal level? It doesn't make sense. Sure, if we could have everything, you know, I would like a pony and a unicorn and a rainbow. But Goldstein says there's plenty of money for research when it first gets going and when it gets to clinical trials. But he says many projects need more cash to get to the finish line. The ballot measure would also increase the number of people on the Independent Oversight Committee for the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Sammy Kaola, Cap Radio News. Now on to Proposition 15, which asks voters to increase funds for schools and local government by increasing property taxes on big businesses. Cap Radio's Chris Nichols has more. Prop 15 is expected to raise as much as $12 billion every year for local schools, community colleges, cities, and counties. It would do this by removing a property tax protection for big businesses, one that was granted in the 1970s under Proposition 13 the protection for homeowners would remain. Here's Yes on 15 spokesperson Alex Stack. We're talking about Hollywood movie studios, companies in Silicon Valley like IBM and Intel, which have been around for decades, haven't changed ownership, are still paying property taxes based on assessments from the 1960s and 70s. Under Prop 15, these large corporations would have to pay property tax based on current market value, Right now, they pay a much lower rate based on the original purchase price. But Rob Lapsley of the California Business Roundtable says the tax hike would harm not just big companies, but small ones too. Large commercial properties will pass the increase on to smaller tenants, such as restaurants, Lapsley says, in the form of higher rents and fees. Ultimately, everybody pays this tax, but the most importantly, the small business owner is going to get hit exactly at the wrong time in this economic crisis. The tax increase would kick in in 2022 for some properties, but not until three years later for those where half or more of the tenants are small businesses. Chris Nichols, Cap Radio News. 
Cap Radio's rundown on some important California ballot measures continues with a look at Proposition 16. California repealed affirmative action more than 20 years ago, but now, amid protests for racial justice, voters will have the opportunity to reinstate it. Here's Cap Radio reporter Nicole Nixon. Affirmative action allows public sectors and universities to consider race, ethnicity, and sex in matters of employment, education, and contracts. It's meant to give a leg up to historically disadvantaged groups. California became the first state to outlaw affirmative action in 1996 through Prop 209. Leo Terrell is a black man who fought to keep affirmative action in the 90s. But now the Los Angeles civil rights attorney has switched sides and is working to keep the ban in place. Look at all these Democratic cities that we're talking about right now, L.A., Chicago, Atlanta. you got people of color running government. We have black president for eight years. You can't have systemic discrimination with the people who are allegedly being discriminated against or the people in charge. Critics point out that America electing a black president did not end racism. And some, including Democratic Assemblywoman Shirley Weber, say there hasn't been enough progress for disadvantaged communities under current law. It created even more unequal opportunity. It created a situation where we saw greater levels of poverty. We still see women who don't have the same opportunity as other women. We still see businesses leaving California because it is too difficult to get contracts here. A lot has changed in society and politics since the 90s. But main arguments on both sides of affirmative action are still familiar, especially when it comes to college admissions. Supporters like Weber say it's necessary to even the playing field and increase opportunities for people who experience discrimination. But opponents say affirmative action is itself just another form of discrimination and racism. Reporter Nicole Nixon returns with a story on Proposition 24, which would tweak the state's new digital privacy law. California's new Consumer Privacy Act has been in effect for less than a year, but already its backers want to strengthen it. Prop 24 would create a new state agency to enforce that law and would triple fines for companies that violate children's online privacy. It would also give consumers more control over the data companies collect. Some advocates, like Consumer Watchdog President Jamie Court, say these are good things. This is the strongest protection in America we have now in California, and Prop 24 makes it even stronger. But others worry the initiative is riddled with loopholes and say it could lead to consumers paying to shield their sensitive information. The steps forward are are minimal at best, uh, and the steps backward are really uh, problematic. That's Jacob Snow with the ACLU of Northern California. The two sparred over the issue this month in a virtual debate hosted by the Sacramento Press Club. Under current law, users have to check boxes to prevent companies from selling their data. Prop 24 wouldn't change that, but Snow says it should. It doesn't uh, make privacy the default, which is the protection that Californians need, and the thing that will actually do the job of protecting people's privacy. But supporters worry if Prop 24 doesn't pass, tech companies will start to chip away at California's landmark privacy law. Court points out that in the year after it passed, special interest groups flooded the state capitol trying to gut the law. It is crazy, and this law will fall if we don't lock it into statute. Some argue that the current law should have more time before it's changed. The California Small Business Association says business owners spent time and money to comply, and a new law would cost them more. Nicole Nixon, Cap Radio News. And finally... 
There's only one referendum on this year's ballot. Proposition 25 will determine whether California bans cash bail. CAP Radio's Scott Rod has this report. To understand Prop 25, you have to go back to 2018. Lawmakers voted to abolish the state's cash bail system, giving judges more control over defendants' pretrial release. They'd rely on computerized risk assessments to make their decision. The bail industry swiftly filed a referendum. Now it's up to voters to decide. John Bouters is with the nonprofit Californians for Safety and Justice, a reform group that supports Prop 25, meaning they want to end cash bail. The cash bail industry is a multi-billion dollar industry that has preyed off of low-income and working families, and particularly communities of color, for a very long time. He adds that cash bail can result in defendants confessing to crimes they did not commit. Cap Radio had no luck requesting interviews with the No on Prop 25 campaign or prosecutors and victims' rights groups that also oppose the measure. They argue more defendants on the street could endanger communities. But there's also opposition from some criminal justice reform groups that say Prop 25 does not go far enough. John Rafling is a senior researcher with Human Rights Watch. He says it's problematic that a defendant's release would be based on employment history, education level, and past criminal record. Because the factors that they're using reflect racial and class bias within our society overall, the risk assessment tools, they're unavoidably discriminatory. Supporters warn that defeating Prop 25 means the legislature can't pass another law abolishing cash bail. Opponents like Rafling say that's not true. Lawmakers can't pass the exact same law, but they can pursue bail reforms that go further. Scott Rod, Cap Radio News. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. Southern California experienced the impact of a changing climate all summer and fall as heat and flames left their mark. A warming climate was a key talking point for national political candidates last year. But then the pandemic happened. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says the issue was pushed to the edge of the national spotlight. California is enduring unprecedented wildfires. San Diego's Valley Fire was the largest locally, with scores of homes and more than 16,000 acres left blackened by the flames. Warmer temperatures, drier fuels, and uh, this is leading to these uh, extreme fire seasons. Tom Coringham is a researcher at the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. In the western U.S., we still have fires burning now in Colorado. Uh, we have fires um, in California, historical uh, levels of acres burned. More than 4 million acres burned this year alone. 
31 people died, more than 9,200 structures were destroyed. On top of that, scientists saw record high temperatures, 130 degrees in Death Valley in August. Then September, the hottest month ever. The higher temperatures leads to melting of uh, the ice caps in the Arctic, in um, Greenland and in Antarctica. The scientific community says those events are all calling cards of a changing climate. There's no way that these fires are natural. This is a, you know, way, way outside of any possible uh, natural occurrence. Scripps Institution of Oceanography researcher Jeffrey Severinghouse found ancient evidence of change as he examined ice cores in polar regions. There's lots of undeniable evidence. <laughs> it's like it's no longer remotely in, in debate. And in California, climate change has broken through and become part of the political debate. In California elections, we see a lot of discussion about climate change, in part because both sides recognize that it's a, a, a real physical challenge to our state. Thad Kowser is a political scientist at UCSD. He says major party candidates in San Diego County and California ignore climate change at their own peril. Kowser says the issue is important because voters are getting firsthand proof that a changing climate will affect them. When you see wildfires and when you when you see seawater rise and the floods that come from that, when you see hurricanes in the, in the Gulf Coast, the, these physical embodiments of climate change, I think, are what will bring it from, from an issue that right now is in the top 10 of most voters' concerns to an issue that will be a, a top-tier issue that, that every politician will need to address. But California's acceptance of climate change has not broken through in a meaningful way in the national political arena. And I welcome you to the final 2020 presidential debate between Climate change was a discussion issue in the debate between President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. Trump touted the clean air and water under his administration. Biden called climate change the existential crisis of our time. However, the candidates spent most of the time on the topic attacking each other's economic policies. UCSD professor David Victor says the national discussion has evolved. During the primary season, there was a huge amount of attention to climate because this is one of the areas where the Democratic candidates differentiated themselves. Once you go into the general... This, is, this election is largely a referendum on the incumbent, as most uh, elections that involve incumbents are. And in these times, given what's going on with the pandemic and the economy and so on, it's a referendum to an even greater degree. And, and frankly, most people are not making their decisions between the two major candidates on the basis of their climate change policies. And Victor says everyone has to be part of the solution. So the national debate needs to start looking like the debate in California. We as a state are less than 1% of global emissions. And so everything we do here needs to be evaluated through the lens of how it increases the odds that other places do similar things. Victor says climate change has to be part of the national discussion because dealing with climate change requires a national solution. Eric Anderson, KPBS News.
San Diego City voters are voting on measures that address affordable housing, police practices, and height limits in coastal development. We'll start this quick roundup with a look at Measure A on San Diego City ballot. It would raise $900 million for affordable housing. Proponents say it's the city's best shot at making a serious dent in the homelessness and housing affordability crises. Detractors say its increase to property taxes comes at the worst possible time. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen takes a closer look. At the corner of Twain and Fairmount Avenues in Grantville sit 79 apartments housing the formerly homeless. The complex, called Stella, opened in December of last year. Residents pay deeply subsidized rents and have on-site services to help them live healthier lives. Stephen Russell, president and CEO of the San Diego Housing Federation, says San Diego needs more of this, a lot more. We have been absolutely uh heartbroken over the fate of folks who are living in the streets of San Diego. We've seen what a, t- what a terrible cost it is to them, to their health, to our common health, to the quality of our neighborhoods. We believe that we have an opportunity now to resolve that. Russell says the $900 million in bonds that Measure A would raise could fund construction of 7,500 affordable homes for the chronically homeless and those at risk of becoming homeless. We want to create a safety net for seniors, veterans, people living with disabilities, and youth who are transitioning out of foster care so that they would not be at risk of homelessness. They're disproportionately homeless in terms of the populations as a whole. Russell adds that the local money could be matched three to four times over with state and federal subsidies, which could work as a local stimulus program as the region recovers from the pandemic. We believe that as a property tax, it spreads so thin over so many people that it's very, it's relatively modest and that it really provides an opportunity for us to create a safety net that is so clearly lacking as we saw during this pandemic. Measure A would be paid back with an increase to property taxes starting next year. And how much you pay depends on the assessed value of your home. For every $100,000, you'd pay about $3 extra in the first year. So say the county assesses your home's value at $600,000. In year one, you'd pay about an extra $1.50 per month. That would gradually increase to about $10.50 per month by the end of the decade. If you're a renter, some of those costs may be passed on to you. You keep giving the the, the bureaucracy more money to spend, they're never going to have any incentive to implement those reforms and regulations. City Council Member Scott Sherman is voting no on Measure A. He points out that with interest, the measure would cost $2.1 billion over 46 years. He says building affordable housing is too expensive and that the government should focus on lowering the cost of construction before raising taxes. Politicians told you, oh, it's just a small little bit of tax. It won't amount to much. It's not that much out of your budget. Well, if you keep doing that time and time again, it finally adds up to where now it's almost half the cost of building housing in this city. Sherman is referring to a 2015 study from Point Loma Nazarene University that found regulations account for up to 47 percent of the cost of housing in San Diego. With subsidized affordable housing, Sherman says the state should end the requirement to pay construction workers higher wages, called prevailing wage. Which, by everybody's account, ups the cost of those units by 20 to 25 percent. I'd much rather get that done without prevailing wage, save that 20 percent, and build more units with that money. 
Measure A has been endorsed by the County Democratic Party, affordable housing builders, and organizations that serve the homeless. It also won support from the San Diego County Taxpayers Association, the Associated General Contractors San Diego, and the Building Industry Association of San Diego County. It's opposed by the County Republican Party, the San Diego Union-Tribune Editorial Board, three city council members, and conservative radio host Carl DeMaio. Measure A needs a two-thirds majority from city voters to pass. Andrew Bowen, KPBS News. Next, we'll look at the issues in Measure B, in which San Diego City residents will vote on whether to create a Commission on Police Practices. It's a more robust citizens' oversight board of San Diego City's police department. KPBS reporter Claire Trageser has this rundown on what's in the measure. Measure B would scrap the existing board, called the Community Review Board on Police Practices, and create an independent commission with subpoena power. Andrea St. Julian, co-chair of San Diegans for Justice, has been pushing the measure. Police officers are professionals, and so they deserve to be treated in the same way that other professionals are treated. And that means having independent oversight. If city voters pass Measure B, the city council will appoint members to the Commission on Police Practices. The commission would have its own staff, an independent attorney, and the power to subpoena and conduct investigations into police officer misconduct. It would also review complaints against officers and make recommendations on police officer discipline and police practices. So when there is uh, something that happens here in San Diego that the community is really concerned about, the new commission can actually do a full investigation and come out with its own results. There is no organized opposition to Measure B. The San Diego Police Officers Association is neutral on it. Claire Tregesser, KPBS News. Measure E on the San Diego City ballot this election would exempt the Midway District from the city's 30-foot coastal height limit. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says that could lead to big changes in the blighted neighborhood. Midway isn't the prettiest part of San Diego. The neighborhood is known for big box stores, industrial lots, and strip clubs. Midway resident D.K. Anyuo says the 30-foot height limit has stood in the way of efforts to revitalize the area. The height limit was approved by voters in 1972 and applies to neighborhoods west of I-5. Midway isn't a coastal neighborhood, Anyuo says, and allowing taller buildings would give property owners an incentive to redevelop. And enables us to actually look to include you know, parks, green space, open land, come up with, you know, buildings and dwelling units that are creative and, and, and have some sort of, uh, you know, real impact that's positive for this community. John McNabb is a longtime San Diego activist who opposes Measure E. He says it's a giveaway to developers, and rather than raising the height limit, the city should create a giant park in the Midway District. All we have to do is understand that public land belongs to the people. Most of the public land in Midway is owned by the military, which has no plans to donate it to the city for a park. The yes side of Measure E has a lopsided advantage in endorsements, with support from both the Republican and Democratic parties. Andrew Bowen, KPBS News. And finally, two local city ballot measures could change the way San Diego Unified School District's board members are elected and held accountable. KBBS education reporter Joe Hong explains the arguments for and against measures C and D. 
Right now, elections for San Diego Unified use a hybrid model. During the primary, only voters from a candidate's sub-district can cast ballots. In the November general, the candidates compete in an at-large election, campaigning across all of San Diego Unified's five sub-districts. Supporters of Measure C hope to change that. They say at-large elections give disproportionate power to the city's white majority and thus marginalize the votes of people of color in certain sub-districts. If passed, the measure would make the November general a bi-district election starting in 2022. Sharon Whitehurst-Payne is an incumbent board member running for re-election in sub-district E. In 2016, she took second place in the primary but won in the general. She said she supports Measure C because it would simplify the election process. My main reason for supporting it has to do with simplification. It's so complicated for folks to understand why we had district only and then citywide. But her opponent, Lawana Richmond, said Measure C would do more than simplify elections. It would remove financial barriers to campaigning and encourage more community members to run for office. She used the example of campaign mailers to show just how much more it costs to run in an at-large election. In the primary, I was able to get on a couple of them um, for a total of like $1,000. For the general election, just to get on one, they wanted $5,000. Richmond said that ultimately Measure C could help diversify the school board by encouraging more people to run. But outgoing board president John Lee Evans said the current system already promotes diversity while ensuring that candidates represent both the needs of their sub-districts and those of the overall district. Evans, who is voting against Measure C, said a bi-district election could encourage board members from more affluent parts of the district to neglect the needs of schools serving more vulnerable student groups. When I was running, I was in ca- accountable to the, the, the voters in the entire district, as opposed to, I'll just take my sub-district and make sure we get the resources we need and, and not pay as much attention to what's going on in the other areas. And I think that's, that's been a benefit, and that is a potential detriment if it were to pass. Evans does, however, support Measure D, which would change the San Diego City Charter to give the school board power to remove a board member for misconduct or failing to carry out his or her duties. But he said the measure couldn't be used by a majority of the board to oust the political opponent in the minority. The measure does not allow for uh, an unpopular board member to be removed for some for some uh, small reason. It has to be very major. The measure was proposed by San Diego City Council members Chris Kate and Vivian Moreno. If passed, the city charter would be modified so that school board members convicted of crimes or failing to carry out their duties could be removed with a three-fourths vote by the other board members. But if they felt for whatever reason that a school board member um, at any time is derelict in their duties, there is a process by which they can remove that school board member absent a recall or a resignation, which we know is very costly and or very difficult to get. Both measures C and D need a simple majority of the votes to pass. Joe Hong, KPBS News. Speaking of San Diego Unified School Board, this time five candidates are on the ballot for three seats. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong spoke to each of them about how they hope to help navigate the state's second largest school district through unprecedented times. Being a school board member is a difficult job even in the best of times. The responsibilities include managing a Byzantine budget, listening to disgruntled parents, and making decisions that have far-reaching consequences for the lives of students. Now we have a global pandemic that has upended nearly every aspect of public education, and a reckoning over racial justice that has forced educators to address the uncomfortable question of who gets left behind in our classrooms. It's against this backdrop that five candidates are vying for three seats on the San Diego Unified School Board, which serves about 100,000 students. 
In Subdistrict A, which covers Claremont, Mira Mesa, and University City, two candidates are competing to replace current board president John Lee Evans, who isn't seeking re-election. Both of the candidates agreed the district needs to rely on public health experts rather than rushing to reopen schools. Sabrina Bazo is a public health educator and a longtime parent volunteer in the district. During the past decade, she served for six years as the Mir Mesa High School Foundation president. She hopes to expand a peer tutoring program that she helped start at Mir Mesa High. And now we're up to about over 30 tutors, I think, and we've probably reached about 50 uh, families or so, and we're continuing that program. So it's a, a good example of something that we could replicate in other parts of the district that's totally free of charge. We're trying to keep it volunteer and we're trying to really identify those students that need those um, resources the most. Bazo's opponent is Crystal Troll, a professor of nonprofit management. She said her experience consulting for nonprofits makes her uniquely qualified to bring accountability and transparency to the district. She said she's been disappointed by the lack of open communication between the district and parents. They've just been making a lot of uh, decisions and having discussions uh, behind closed doors. They tell us little things here and there, but I think that the parent engagement piece has, has really suffered. Um, in terms of communicating. In Subdistrict E, which covers neighborhoods in Southeast San Diego, Luana Richmond is challenging incumbent Sharon Whitehurst-Payne. This subdistrict serves a disproportionate number of low-income students and students of color. Richmond has a doctorate in educational leadership and currently works as an organizational development manager at UC San Diego. She said her experience in the foster care system and as a team mom has given her a first-hand understanding of the challenges facing the district's most vulnerable students. In times like this, when you have enormous disruption in any type of system, it's an opportunity for exponential growth and progress because you learn things that you never would have found out in such a condensed and short period of time because you don't have any choice but to learn, unless you choose not to. Whitehurst Payne, who's trying for a second term, says as a board member she's made sure the district acted swiftly to distribute food and devices when schools first shut down. We wanted to get learning devices out to all children, because we know our schools and we know that in some communities we have a digital divide. Apart from COVID relief efforts, Whitehurst Payne said her primary achievement has been improving training for special education teachers. I have made a difference on this board. I've been able to identify some of the critical issues that would impact District E, African Americans, Latinos, and just across the board. Richard Burr is running for re-election to represent Subdistrict D, which serves downtown San Diego as well as the neighborhoods of North Park, Barrio Logan, and City Heights. A labor rights and community advocate, he's currently the board vice president and has served since 2008, running unopposed in both 2012 and 2016. Barrera is challenged by college professor Camille Harris, who ran against them in the primary as a write-in candidate. Joe Hong, KPBS News. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships 
or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. This year, the annual observance of El Dia de los Muertos has taken on a special meaning. In San Diego and across California, traditional altars welcoming the spirits of deceased loved ones are now filled with pictures of people lost to COVID-19. The pandemic has hit Latinos especially hard, with 62% of total positive coronavirus cases and 50% of deaths in San Diego County affecting the Latino community. The COVID-19 Memorial Ofrendas honor those deaths and also serve as a pointed reminder that not everyone has suffered equally during the long months of this pandemic. Joining me is former State Assemblywoman and co-creator of the COVID-19 Victims Memorial Project, Lori Saldana. And Lori, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Are the altars for COVID-19 victims the same as traditional ofrendas? In the case of our project, our Corona Victims Memorial Project, we've added information about how people can protect themselves from getting the virus in, in English and Spanish. So they are different that we've added an educational element to them. And some of the items we put on the altars, actually, we put masks on the skulls. We've reminded people with backdrops that not everyone, as you said, is affected by this. Essential workers are being killed more often by this virus than other people in San Diego. Is the Day of the Dead typically a sad occasion, Lori? It's a combination. I think if deaths are recent, people are still mourning and grieving. And that's certainly the case with COVID, especially if they weren't able to be with their loved one when they passed. But often we honor people who have lived, you know, a hundred you know, decades ago, a hundred years ago. And I think that's a little more joyous celebration of their lives well lived and often long lives. So this year, it definitely has, we've lost so many young people. I think it is a, a different type of observance. Why did you want the community to remember especially the loss of COVID-19 victims in this way? Well, as the website makes clear, and Sonara Velasquez, who's a, a website designer and, and did a great job getting data from the county, shows that there are certain zip codes where the rates are extremely high. El Cajon, I was surprised to see the El Cajon zip codes, the highest in the county. Others are very low. And the irony is we see those areas with the low turnout clamoring to reopen. But the people who live in the high areas, they are often the ones that pay the price for reopening too quickly. They are essential workers in restaurants. Many work in healthcare, And they can't do their work remotely. So what we are seeing is a real disparity in who's being impacted by the deaths in this pandemic. As you mentioned, many of the victims of COVID-19 were not able to be surrounded by loved ones at the time of their deaths. They were isolated in hospitals. What impact does that have on families? Well, there, there's this disconnection. They weren't able to wish them off, so to speak. And I think welcoming their spirit back is even more important this year. And I've heard that from many families, that the fact they couldn't hold a hand, they couldn't uh, say goodbye in person was really troubling to them. So they're looking at altars as a way to reconnect in a, in a spiritual way. And I think that's made these people who died in isolation from COVID even more welcomed back to these altars that we see going up around the community. 
You mentioned that there is a disparity in zip codes, and I mentioned in the beginning of this the large number of people in the Latino community who've been affected by this disease. In what ways have you seen the pandemic affect San Diego's Latino community? Well, it's certainly hitting families uh, financially. If they lose somebody who is the sole provider of the family, we see a lot more people living in poverty and there are free food pantries set up, some near Sherman Heights, near the altar that we set up at the community center. But we also see it in Filipino families. We've set up an altar in National City and they have one of the highest rates, well, well, the largest Filipino population in the county by far, and many of them are healthcare workers. So in the Latino community, I would say communities of color, um, African-American, Latino, we are seeing the disproportionate impacts in all of those neighborhoods. And we have altars spread around in those South County areas, National City, Chula Vista City Hall, Euclid Health Center at Euclid and Market. We really wanted to reach out to those communities and and do the education as well as the observance of the people who have died. And when people go and stop by and visit, what should they do? Should they bring something? Should they just stand quietly? What should they do? Well, some people, if they want to bring a photo of a a family member, a friend who has passed, I've seen people add photos to the altars. They might bring a favorite beverage. I see bottles of beer. I see favorite foods. I see writings about that person. Sometimes I see in our altar at Sherman Heights, it's near the sidewalk, and I've seen families drive up and the older adults stay in the car. Uh, to stay safe and socially distanced, and the younger people may get out and take photos. So I I think this is such an extraordinary time, and people are are doing different things at altars, but often it is a personal memento that meant something to the person that's being honored at that altar. You mentioned the, the website that accompanies this project, and in addition to the data about coronavirus deaths, there are also some biographies of those who are lost to this epidemic. Can you tell me about one of those people who've been profiled? Well, um, there was a woman who was a, a social worker for the county of San Diego. She raised or she fostered 25 different children. Um, and, you know, I have to say, I, I haven't memorized a lot of their names. It, I, I was surprised at how challenging working on this project was because we would we would do sort of the uh, the nuts and bolts of it, the way we would do many volunteer projects. And then it would start to hit me just what we were dealing with is the loss. And uh, especially someone who fostered over 20 children or, uh, you know, made other significant contributions to our community. So unlike other projects, which I've, I've are often very personal, I, I've kept a little bit of this at a distance. Um, it, it's just been, I found it harder than other projects I've worked on. One last question for you, Laurie. What has the support from the community been like for this project? I think people have been overwhelmed. Uh, I started reaching out, proposing this several weeks ago. And what I found is people are really overwhelmed. And I'm very grateful that Sonara Velasquez has stepped up to help with this. You know, even she is overwhelmed, but she found a passion in doing this. Uh, And I think once we have set this up and we've explained that we've, we've we're honoring uh, a loved one. I think they're very grateful and they appreciate having that information be out there because sadly it can be very expensive and difficult to put a memorial in a public place. The newspaper ads are extremely expensive. So this is one way to let the community know 
this person has passed. And, and in fact, when we were setting up one of the, of the altars, one of the volunteers saw a photo of a friend and said, oh my gosh, I had no idea. So a lot of these deaths are happening quietly, you know, in isolation. And I think people are, are grateful that we are making this more of a public uh, grieving process. And I've been speaking with Lori Saldana, the co-creator of the COVID-19 Victims Memorial Project. Lori, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. For more on this project, you can go to their website, coronavictimsmemorial.org. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.